Taylor's going to be reading uh, from chapter 8, uh, verses 14 through 25. So be, be ready, okay? Good to go. Cool. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself bear, beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope. But hope that is not seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. God, we thank you uh, for this opportunity to come before you and to, to hear your word, to praise you today. Lord, I ask that you would open our hearts to receive what it is that you have for us, that you'd remove any distractions from our mind, that you'd give us ready and obedient ears so that we would not only hear your word, but that we'd be ready to obey it. Um, God, if there's anyone that, that doesn't know you today, then Lord, I ask that today would be the day of salvation, that today would be the day that you prick their hearts and that they accept you as Lord and Savior, that they accept the free gift of salvation that we have. Lord, I ask that you would speak through Brandon, not only to all of us, but also to him as he is preaching what you've shown him. Uh, Lord, please empower him and, and just bless this time mightily. Please prepare us and prepare our hearts not only for today, but for the rest of the week. Please give us a message that we can take to our coworkers, to our friends and family, to everyone that we come in contact with. God, we ask that you would be magnified and glorified in this place, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Steve. All right, good morning. I'm going to walk around with this thing, I guess. But I need space, because if I can't move around, then I'm going to... Okay. Good morning, guys. It's been a minute. Three weeks. Uh, we've had awesome uh, guest speakers. Not really guests, though, right? Uh, friends speaking in here. And, and it's good to be back in the pulpit, though. As much as I've loved all my brothers coming and sharing with us, it's good to be back in Romans and studying Romans. And so I hope that you're ready. I'm going to do a brief review. Well, it probably won't be brief. <laughs> so I, I retract that statement. It will be a review. Uh, and, okay, so here we are in Romans, it's chapter 8, and the whole of the letter up to this point has been basically about the following. Ooh. <laughs> I didn't anticipate that this morning. <laughs> yeah? No? Yeah? Oh, there we go. Okay, cool. Thank you, guys. Um, so up to this point, this is a letter to the Roman church. It's a baby church. In the largest city in the world. It's a fledgling work. The gospel is beginning to spread. You have, uh, it's, a, uh, it's a multicultural church. So you have both Gentiles, which are the people who weren't traditionally followers of God. And you have the Jewish people who were followers of God, but have come to the realization that Jesus Christ is the way and the truth. Okay? And you have these people co-mingling in an environment. And as we all know, because we live in America... Then when you have cultures that come in, in contact with each other, there's often conflict that needs to be resolved. And so here we are. Paul's writing a letter uh, to the church in Rome. He desires to come to Rome, but he hasn't yet. And so he has to address a lot in this letter. There's a lot that he needs to talk about. And the primary focus is, is taking the, the, the message of salvation and the gospel of Jesus Christ and kind of extrapolating that to make it practical for the church. And, and what we saw, just to fast forward a little bit, is in Romans chapter 7, we saw that really, even though that we're Christians, even those of us who've come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, even though 
uh, we, we have recognized that Jesus Christ is our Savior and he set us free from bondage and we're justified and we have access to him and we have, uh, we have all of these things in him, we still so often find ourselves doing things that we know that we shouldn't do. And Paul used himself as, as an example in, in chapter 7. He says, the things that I desire to do, I can't do because the things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing. And he gave us this little gymnastic wordplay thing where he's trying to explain to us the way that it feels to desire to do what's right, but then constantly finding yourself doing the things that you know you shouldn't do. And then he brings us into chapter 8, and he tells us, you know what, though? You're not condemned. You know, I I, I find myself having that conversation with people a lot. You know, uh, a lot of us find ourselves doing things that we, we know that we shouldn't, and then, and then, you know, as the pastor, I, I get to have lots of these conversations. And, and people come to me and they say, I said this thing or I did this thing and I know that it's egregious. And they don't kind of know what to do with it. They're just holding it. And they're bringing it to me. And we know, we know how this is. We're all, we're all a family. We know what it's like when we have brothers and sisters that come to us and they're holding that thing. And they don't know what to do with it. And the most beautiful thing that, I, that I've been able to do is say, guess what, though? You're not condemned. And the fact that you're breathing, and the fact that you're alive, and the fact that you've been saved, means that you have, you have today to get that thing right. You have, that, you have today to find freedom. You have today to live in the Spirit. You have today to choose to move forward and be different today than, the, than what you were yesterday. So don't be imprisoned by your mistakes. Don't be imprisoned by your sins. Choose to follow in the freedom. You know what? Jesus said he came not to condemn, right? He didn't come to this world to condemn us. We were condemned already. We were just just in condemnation. We were just in bondage. We were just imprisoned to our sin. But you know what? That is never, ever, ever true of the Christian. You can't say that at all anymore. You are not condemned. You are not imprisoned. And there is a way to move forward in faith that allows you to have purpose and freedom. Thank God for that. Thank you for Romans chapter 8. And as we move down through the letter in Romans chapter 8, what we find is that actually Romans chapter 8 is a bit of a recipe for getting freedom over your sin. And, And one of the things that we talked about is the mortification of the flesh. That because you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you, You actually have the ability to crucify your flesh, to put it to death every single day because you know what's going to creep up. You know what's coming at you. Okay? you got to watch your back. And you know what? You have the ability and the freedom and the liberty in Christ Jesus to be set free every day, to mortify your flesh and to move forward in strength. Now, now, uh, then we started talking about sonship and the fact that because we're children of God, we have privilege in God. We belong to Him. We belong to the Father. And that, now we find ourselves in verse 16. So that wasn't, you know, that if you want to really review, obviously go back and listen to the message. Okay, go back and read. All right, but here we are in verse 16, and I, I want to I want to hunker in here for a second before we get into the next set of verses. Can we do that? Are you awake? Yes. Yes. Okay. Be alive. <laughs> verse 16. The Spirit itself. Beareth witness with our spirit. Now, notice the difference there for you, those of you who are new to Bible study. Okay, notice the difference in the two spirits there. What do you? What's the difference between those two spirits? Yeah, one is capitalized, one is lowercase. Okay, the capitalized spirit is obviously that's the pronoun spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the other part of God, the personage of God, part of the Triune God. And the lowercase spirit is actually the thing inside of us that makes us alive. Okay? All right? And so that's like our gut. That's the thing that makes us us. And, and so what it's saying here is the Spirit itself beareth witness with our, with our personage. Okay? God's Spirit meets our living Spirit, the thing that makes us living, and it meets us in that place. It beareth witness with our Spirit that we are the children of God. It's good to be a child of God. And some of us neglect the witness of the Holy Spirit. Some of us neglect to hear the voice 
of the Spirit of God calling out to us, calling us child of God. And, you know, part of that's just that process of like finding yourself in sin and, and, and maybe slowly finding yourself distant from God and forgetting the voice of God, right? Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's just time and lack of faith and, and lack of accountability. It's brought you to a place where you've forgotten that you're a child. But whatever it is that has brought you to that place, we have to listen. The Holy Spirit is calling you child. And we need to know that. And if children, then, then there's things that come along with being children. Okay? We're heirs. Okay? Now, I hope one day that when I die... Okay, so guys, check it out. I don't have much. I'm a school teacher. I'm a, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm poor. That wouldn't be fair. But I ain't rich. Okay? But I plan on leaving my son something. And it's mainly uh, my J- Michael Jordan shoe collection. <laughs> so in a box in my closet, um, you know, there are something like 15 pairs of retro Jordans. And some of them have never been worn. Why? Yeah, they're dead stock. Yeah. I could. I could make money. I could sell them, right? But no, no. They're an inheritance. <laughs> so one day, one day, uh, my son can adorn those shoes, and, and I'll look on him and think, "Oh, isn't that that's precious?" Right? And that's that is not that good of an inheritance. <laughs> yeah, we have we are heirs to the living God, the one that created all things, that made all things. Okay, the eternal one the Alpha and the Omega. And we've been talking about this over, over our time together, but, but, but specifically in verse 17, we're heir to a couple of things. First of all, we're heirs of God. In other words, He is our Father. Yes, he is our Father. And we have privilege in Him. He calls His child. He, he knows us. Yeah? And that's good to know. But here's the one that we're not really willing to come to grips with a lot of times. Okay? We are joint heirs with Christ. Well, that that sounds good. And we talked about that that does imply really awesome blessing eternally. Like, whatever Jesus gets in heaven, we are joint heirs. We are co-heirs in that thing. So whatever Jesus gets, this is mind-blowing to me, the Son of God, what He gets in heaven, we get to partake in that. That's amazing. But, But there's a flip side to it. That's, that's the eternal blessing. That's, I mean, that, that's the good stuff. That's the stuff that we like to talk about. But then there's some stuff that we don't like to be heirs to. If so, okay, semicolon, if so, be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to us. In other words... If we, if we have the privilege of being an heir to heavenly things alongside Jesus Christ, then we also get the privilege of being joint heirs in the earthly things that Jesus Christ endured. And if you've read the Gospels, then you recognize pretty quickly that Jesus didn't have it real great when he was on this earth. He was essentially a pilgrim, okay, walking around, never really having a place to lay his head that he could call home. Why? Because he was, he was uh, everywhere that he went, he was rebuked and condemned. He lived a life uh, uh, bearing a message that few would receive. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was crucified. And that's what we get to partake in. And now, none of us in this room will likely ever suffer a death like the cross. But the point here is that we suffer like Jesus. And that we have to come to grips with that. We have to come to grips with the idea that if you're going to live like a Christian should live, then there will be hardship that comes along with that. So there's two things that we need for a perspective of, for suffering. Okay? And this is not up here. This is like, I'm not even there yet. That's not even, I haven't even hit that part of the review. Sorry, not sorry. 
So we need two things to have a proper perspective in the midst of suffering. First of all, we have to come to grips with it. If we are joint heirs or co-heirs with Christ, that means we receive his spiritual inheritance as well as his his physical inheritance. If Christ suffered on earth, then so shall we. Okay? So we've got to come to grips with that fact. All right? And many of us aren't willing. And so what we do is we live a safe life. Tiptoeing Christians. They never fully dive in. Because we know that we, that we do. In fact, we actually judge people that do. We judge people that dive in. Many of you have faced that judgment from other Christians where they think you're a quack job. They think that you're weird because you dove in all the way. You take God's word seriously. And guess what? When you do that, when you live like a real Christian, when you live life like a little Christ, then the, then the truth is you're going to face the suffering the same way Jesus did. Do not play it safe. Go all in. And embrace the fact. Come to grips with the fact that means suffering. The other thing is you need to contextualize suffering. You need to contextualize it. Suffering is momentary. And because it's momentary, it's manageable. It's manageable. In light of eternal glory, it is manageable. If life is just this short, and eternity is just that long, right? And if we recognize that, then we have the ability to comprehend that in this moment, in this suffering, in this difficulty, in, in, in whatever it is that we face, it ain't no thing. It just isn't. It just isn't. And we have the ability to move forward unscathed by trial, by temptation, by sadness, by loss. We can move forward in strength and power. A spiritual perspective will give us endurance. And some of us this morning, we need a spiritual perspective because you're in a drought. Because you're in a place where where that suffering came up against you and you retreated. You didn't lean in. And so now you find yourself in a place where your spiritual perspective is askew. And we need to fix that. Now, verse 19 Verse 19. This doesn't mean, what we just said doesn't mean that suffering won't be painful. Okay? It just means that we don't have to lose our minds over it. That's what that means. Mourning is okay. Sadness is okay. It's a prescription in scripture, actually. Sadness is okay. Grieving things is okay. Acknowledging that something is sad is okay. But we do not have to lose our minds. But it does mean we need to be patient because relief will require waiting. You want relief from the difficulty of this world, guess what? You're not going to get it in this lifetime. You will only get it as you have patience and you are waiting on the coming of Jesus Christ. Verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creature, the thing that's created, okay? That means all of creation, people, Nature, animals, everything waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Because the creature itself, itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not uh, hope. For what man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if, if we hope for that we see not, then we do with patience wait for it. Okay, there's a lot there. And I, I'm not going to go back through this. Go listen to the other message. But this is what I want to point out to you. The word groaneth in verse 22 means the feeling of a joint experience of enduring calamity. The joint experience, the share, shared experience. You know, the only thing that I can really think of that I've recognized like that, at that level, besides things at the micro level, at the church level, that ever happened, that I recognized that there was a group and joint experience of suffering was 9-11. And some of you maybe weren't even born yet. Okay, I mean, for real. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Raise your hand if you weren't born yet. Yeah, okay, see, look, one or two. All right? Yeah, you can't believe that. They're coming. They're coming up. Okay? So, so, listen, after September 11th, our entire nation mourned in grief. Nothing could be said. Nothing could be done. It was just painful. It was a joint experience where everyone together groaned within their spirit. There was something that wasn't right, that needed to be set right. And I want to point out to you this morning that that our, our waiting on the Lord, our suffering that we experience is a joint experience, brother and sister in Christ. It's something that we all wait on patiently together. Right? We all recognize suffering. We all feel it. You know, a lot of times we like to say that people just don't get what we've been through. You know, that's our excuse to not share our pain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No one, can ex- no one knows what my experience is like. Okay, of course not. Of course not. But we all understand suffering. And if we don't give one another, ch- other, uh, one another a chance to empathize together, and recognize that the only thing that's going to fix our problems, whatever they may be, is Jesus Christ, then there's something askew in the way that we suffer. You're going to suffer alone in your home by yourself in the darkness in the closet? You're going to hide away and lick your wounds? Or are you going to bring them together and make our groaning communal? That's a prescription here. I mean, he's talking about this in light of of the church and all of creation recognizing a need for the return of the Messiah. That's the only thing that will fix things. And if we're awaiting that, and if that's our hope, that's our invisible hope, then that's something that we should share together. Okay, but look, look again in verse 23. He uses the word groan again. And in this case, this word groan is more of a personal groaning. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. The word groan here is similar to verse 22. But it's not communal, it's personal. It's a personal and audible grief. It's a groaning within a person, and it's related to waiting for God to set things right. And so God also hears you at the personal level and the pain that you suffer. Okay, a great example of this is Hannah. Yeah, you guys know that story? 1 Samuel chapter 1. Hannah is, is, in, this, is in great pain because she cannot bear a child. And she's been ridiculed for it, and she's endured suffering and pain, and life is miserable for her because she cannot bear a child. And she goes into the temple, and she prays. And it's a, it's a prayer of pain. Remember, and, and, and you remember Eli, the priest, is watching her, and he doesn't know what to make of it. Because she's, her mouth is moving, and he doesn't understand what's going on. She's not being audible the, the, the vow and the prayer that she's making is in her heart and she's grieving. She's groaning within herself and he thinks that she's drunk. And he goes and he's, he's like, what's the matter with you? She had a personal grieving that only God could come through in her circumstance. And so there's this groaning. Now let me, let me get back to this idea. Verse 25, but if we hope for, for that we see not, then do we... With patience, wait for it. The answer is in our waiting. And in our waiting, in our patience, we must endure. We must have endurance. You know, I went for a run with my son this week. I go running. Okay? Not a lot. Okay? I get it. All right? Don't judge me right now. All right? But, but, but I'm trying to get more fit. I've been running. And, and my son always wants to run with me. Okay, but, but I don't think in a 90-degree weather, it's probably wise for me to let my 5-year-old uh, come running with me like 5 miles. I don't think he can handle that. That's probably not wise. So what I do is I go for a run, and I come back, and then we go for a run together, and he'll run like around the block with me. Like I'm dying, and I just want to go in the house, and, and Shepard and I go for a mini run. And, you know, uh, so at times, um, he kind of just stops he's like, oh, gosh. And he's catching his breath, right? Because he's a little boy. And this week, I said to him, all right, buddy, let's, let's take this hill. Let's do it. And he's like, Dad, I don't know if I'm ready. 
right? He's like, let me just, you know, just my, I, I don't know if, it's a, if he's just playing it up or what. Right? Just let me catch my breath, okay? And I'm like, okay, hey, son, do you know what endurance is? All right? Now I'm not that freak parent. I'm like the coach parent, all right? All right? I, this is just an opportunity to learn, okay? Because I think he can handle it. And I say to him, you know what endurance is? He's like, no, what's, what's that? As I, I said, it's when you discipline yourself to move beyond what you think isn't possible. And you learn to keep going. And so, like, right now, you think that you can't climb that hill, but I bet you can. So let's do it. And he's like, all right, let's do it. And so we, we ran up the hill. Right? But endurance is this thing that, that requires a level of patience and discipline that many of us aren't willing to invest in. And I, and I want to give you the keys to unlocking this. Well, it's, it's, my, it's the last slide. Where are you going? Are you way ahead of me, Avira? Are you, t- are you hurrying me? <laughs> One more. Again, again. Is there not the review section of the slide? I saw it. There. <laughs> are you following along? <laughs> Okay, so here, we're not going to spend too much time here, but I want to give you this. Because the passage actually unlocks for us what endurance, what's necessary for us to become endurant. And the first thing is life is hard, but we endure it with Christ. He's present with us. You know, I was present there with my son. My presence made him believe that it was possible for him to take the hill. Okay? The presence of Jesus Christ in our life, the friendship and the intimacy that we have with him, Reminds us that it's possible for us to do anything. Alright? We're not going to camp out there too much. Life is hard, but we endure it with God's people. Verses 22 and 23. That groaning that happens, it's together. That's us. It's us together, suffering together. We're all going through it together. And knowing that reminds us that we're a team. That we can rely on one another. That we're the body of Christ. We're fitly joined together. Joined is a lot like that word, joint heirs with Christ. Oh yeah, what about joint heirs together? Joined together, Right? And we fit with each other. And without one another, we cannot endure. The New Testament is all about us running a race. Not alone. Not, not, not for our own glory. For God's glory together. Three, life is hard, but we endure it with a promise in mind. Verses 24 and 25 remind us that there's a promise. That there's something that we're waiting for. That there's something that, that the redemption is nigh. It's on our doorstep. He's promised that he's going to take our corrupt and vile bodies and make them right. And he's going to take a world that's wicked and broken and messed up and he's going to set that right. And he's going to put things in their right course. And if we believe that, then it gives us the ability to rely on those promises, to believe them and obey and endure with joy even in the midst of suffering. Are you with me? And sometimes when my voice gets up here, I feel like I'm trudging through. And then it just becomes like monotone and then it's gone and no one's hearing it. Okay, I'm talking. I'm talking about God's promises to us. What? You can't believe him for things unless he promises you things. You can't. What are you going to believe for if there isn't a a promise first? I mean, the problem with religion today in our world is that people want to be spiritual and believe God for things that he's never even said. And so they find themselves wandering off on some sort of religious tangent that they've made up in their mind. They've invented their own Jesus that wants to give them a Ferrari. And that, and that Jesus wants to build them a palace here on earth. And that Jesus wants them to be happy all the time. And so they pray to that Jesus. And the problem is, the way, the way they got there is they never read the promises. And then the last thing is life is hard, but we endure it with the Spirit. And that leads us to today's message. (laughs) But I will tell you, it's just two verses. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I need you. I need you to communicate. I may have, Lord, I may have just botched the review. I, I have no idea. I'm trusting you right now. And God, I, I would pray that, um, that, Lord, you'd speak and you'd teach us something about prayer. 
because, uh, Lord, uh, by self-admission from our leadership, I've heard over and over again over the last few months that this is an area of our lives that we struggle with as a ministry. And God, we repent of that now. Uh, we, are not, we are not good at praying. We have a prayer ministry. And uh, I think in our minds we think that that's sufficient. Um, we need to make our lives about talking to you and intimacy with you. And that means calling upon your name. It doesn't mean just study. Okay? Uh, God, we need, we need an opportunity to align our hearts with yours in prayer. Teach us how to do that today. In your name. Amen. Amen. Verse 26. Life is hard, but we endure it with the Spirit. Likewise. Okay, so here, here God is giving us something precious here. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. He helps our infirmities. What is an infirmity? Okay? Pop. An infirmity is a weakness. It's a weakness. A suffering, okay? It's something difficult that we're going through, perhaps. It's a trial. Or maybe it's just a personal character flaw. Maybe it's a sin issue that you keep coming into. What it means is a very general term for weakness. And by weakness, what I mean is something we perceive that causes us to function at a deficit. We think that that thing causes us to function at a loss. That we can't be right or do right or whatever it might be because of that, that thing keeps getting in the way. That's an infirmity. And what we're going to look at today is how God's Spirit works on our behalf so that we can overcome and function in spite of our weaknesses. You know, I sat with a guy yesterday at the coffee shop. Um, he's, he's a guy that's there all the time, and so we've become friendly with one another. And we were talking to each other, and this is a guy that's gone through a lot over the last couple of years. And he's had uh, personal illness, and he, um, it's, like, it's like residual physical problems where he, he, he's, one of his eyes, like he had a stroke, and, and he can't see very good out of one of his eyes. And, um, and he, he struggles to walk a little bit. Uh, he has some numbness in his hand. And then his, and actually his, he lost a friend recently um, in, in a murder. And uh, this is a guy I've been talking to Saturday after Saturday for a while. And um, he invited me to sit down with him and we talked for a while. And while I was talking to him, he was saying lots of things that I knew were familiar in terms of worldly thinking. You know, there's a guy that said he believed in God, but he, hadn't, he hasn't believed on Jesus Christ. And, and I know that. And he was having questions about pain. And he said that he asks God why, right? And, and he has questions of fate and, and the randomness of the world. Like, why do things happen? And these are the questions that he has. And you know, at the end of the day, they leave him in a place of void and emptiness. All those questions and all that, all that suffering leaves him, a, him in a place of void and emptiness with no answers. And what I've recognized in that, con- what I recognize in that conversation is that while infirmity and weakness is universal, you with me? Everyone suffers. You know what's not universal? Help. Help. Because that man had no one to help him. Because he's not a child of God. And, 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 I, and I witnessed to him, and, and you know what? This Saturday, he did not believe on Jesus Christ. Maybe next Saturday. Um, but my point is, is this. The only thing that can truly help him is God. And God tells us how he helps us as Christians. When we come into a place, a place of suffering, a place of trial, a place of drought, a place of where we can't overcome our sin, this is what he says to us. He says, he says likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. And this is, this, is the, this is the catcher, okay? He says, For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. So God says help. Listen, God says help is prayer. We think help comes at the end of prayer. Isn't that funny? No, help is the prayer. The Spirit helps us. Not necessarily by taking away our infirmities or our suffering, but by, by praying on our ha- behalf and intervening. Okay, so here's the question. Why prayer? 
First of all, hey, hey slow, slow your roll. Back it up. There we go. His prayer is a priority to the believer. Prayer is a priority to the believer. To the believer. Okay? Why does God give his spirit to help us in prayer? Because God prioritizes intimacy with him. He desires that prayer be right before him. Now, an example of this is in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. So please turn there with me. I know that you're writing, flipping, okay? Students of the word, be nimble. Agile with both hands. Micah? Okay, Acts chapter 6, verse 1. There's a little story here. The apostles were having some problems in the early church. And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because the widows were neglected in the daily ministration. In other words, things were getting busy. The apostles were, were doing the work of the ministry and they were getting overwhelmed because they were neglected unintentionally neglecting service to the women without husbands who needed help. Something was getting neglected because they had too many plates spinning and ministry was getting hard. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, it is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. In other words, we need some help because we're supposed to be studying God's word. And we need some help if we're going to get all this stuff done. And so ministry in terms of the local church, was in, it was invented here. And the, and the role of the deacon and, and the role of leadership came into being in this moment. And wherefore, brethren, look ye out among yourselves, uh, uh, among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But look, look at verse 4. What's the point? What's the point? What's the point here? But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The early apostles' point here was this. Look, if we don't spread this workload, then we're not going to be able to pray. Because prayer is priority. For the, for the man or woman of God who wants to endure, who wants to live in the midst of suffering, who wants to have eyes on the judgment seat of God, who wants to be faithful in the purposes that the Word of God has set for us, we have to make prayer a priority. Ian Bounds wrote a lot about prayer. Old theologian. He says, the only real religious people in the world are people of prayer. Now, to me, that's a crazy powerful statement and should slap you right upside the head. Because I recognize in myself a religiosity that I perceive, a piety that I perceive about myself. And then I'm reminded of my lack of prayer. God, forgive me. I need more time in intimacy with Jesus Christ in prayer. I don't need to be more busy. I don't need to do more things. I need to pray. God prioritizes intimacy with him, and so should we. Two, prayer is power. Matthew chapter 6, okay, in verse 9, you know, Jesus is laying out for his disciples. You guys know the, you know the prayer, right? He's teaching them how to pray, okay? And he says, he says in verse 9, he says, After this manner, therefore pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Holy is your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Stop there. Stop. We don't need to read the rest of this. Jesus Christ is giving us a prescription of prayer. And in this prayer, he says that we have the ability to pray. And, and God's very hand, the nature of his very kingdom, his eternal world, will come and enter into this one. In other words, the supernatural will enter into the natural, and he will work on our behalf simply because we pray. End of story. Prayer is powerful. And we don't believe it. We don't believe it. And that is problematic for the church. And I want to tell us, Kaya, we are talking about having a vision for evangelism in our schools and reaching out and discipling people and ministering to people where they're at. And listen to me, if that's not driven 
by prayer and study, then it will not get done. God, your kingdom here on earth, just as it is in heaven, come. There's power in prayer. We have to learn it. And you know, the primary objective is God's power, not our own. Not our own. We'll get to that here in a minute. The third thing, our prayer, our prayer is pitiful. The, the third thing we need to understand is that our prayer is pitiful. Apparently, according to verse 26, we're not very good at praying. That's what it says, right? It says, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. Not just bad at praying, but, but bad at praying as it regards pain and suffering. Okay, that's the context here is pain and suffering, right? We're, we're not just bad at suffering, but specifically as it regards pain and suffering and weakness. Why? Why is that? Have you thought about that? It's because we're selfish and weak in character. And God knows it. See, the, the carnal Christian, the carnal Christian might suppose the following. If God really wanted to help my infirmity, then why not just take away the suffering so that we can get on with life? Because that's how we think. That's why we ask the question, why? Why, God? Oh, man. My kids. Gosh. <laughs> if I, I need to start counting how many times a day I hear, but Daddy, but Daddy, but Daddy, at night. Oh, my gosh. Before bed. But daddy, but like, no, just do what I said. <laughs> do what I said. No buts. Just do, just do it. You know, our problem is that we are, are imposing upon prayer our bad assumptions. We have bad assumptions as prayer is concerned. Okay. First one. First bad assumption is that God's primary objective is to deliver you from discomfort so you can be happy. Your thought is that God's primary objective in creating the whole world and giving you salvation is to make you happy all the time. You know, God isn't real concerned with happiness. You know, he's real concerned about joy. He's not real concerned with your entertainment, but he is real concerned about your obedience. The things that we tend to be concerned with, God's not. And what we do is we impose those things, our selfish thoughts on prayer. 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Here's an example for you. You ready? 2 Corinthians 12, 7. And lest, this is Paul talking, okay? This is a, this is a story, so stay with me. You got to hang with me here, okay? Verse 7, he says, He's talking to the church in Corinth. He says, unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations. In other words, now, I was tempted to get proud. I, because, you know, this is the Apostle Paul we're talking about. If anybody deserved to be a little bit proud, I mean, this guy's a stud, right? And he's saying here, because of the revelation of God, there's this aspect of me that I know that's tempted to be proud. And so, and so there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. There was given to me a suffering. There was given to me an infirmity. There was given to me a trial. There was given to me a difficulty that I had to endure through. The messenger of uh, Satan to buffet me. So this thing, I, I recognize that there's two things that, this, that this, this pain and this thorn could do. Is it could keep me from being proud, but it could also throw me off course. It, it could mess me up so that I lost focus on God. It, it, I, was, I had this thing, and it was messing with me. It was this trial. It was this temptation. And it, could, it, and it kept me from being proud, which is awesome, but it also kept me, it was a temptation to, 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 to fall off course. Now listen to what he says. Lest I be exalted above measure, for this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. So is it evil or wicked for us to pray that God would deliver us from pain and suffering? Is that wicked? No, it's not wicked. But it's just not the purpose. Life's primary objective is for not, for not for you to feel great all the time. And if you think that, you're going to be very disappointed with life in general. 
you're going to be very disappointed. Life is hard. And the Christian, above all, will suffer the most. So our first assumption that's bad is that we think that God wants to just always take our discomfort away. And then two, that God is withholding comfort and that prayer is nothing more than a necessary means to get what we want. And so we think that the function of prayer and the act of praying is like some way of like unlocking the secret to get the happiness. So it's just this, this like kind of messy thing that we've got to do to get to the place where we get the thing that we want. I mean, a lot of us just want the quickest route past pain and suffering. So our prayers tend to be self-consuming and, and, and impose our will on God's when it's, when it's His will that must be imposed on us. Look at how Paul prayed. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and he said unto me, this is, this is the response that God gave to his prayer about that thorn in the flesh. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. Oh, Christian. I take pleasure in my infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So, key point, numero uno. Spanish speakers, that's all you'll ever get from me. That's all, that's all I've got. That's it. Thanks. Key point, number one. God purposes our weaknesses so that we might display the strength of his helping hand. So, that, so the infirmity in our life, the weakness, the trial, the difficulty, even that sinful predisposition that you have in your flesh, that thing that you know that's like, that, 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 that you know God is condemned, but you keep, like, it keeps following you around like a shadow, that thing that you don't have to fall into is there to remind you that you need him to make you strong. It's not there that you might, like, dabble in it over here. It's there that you might see it for what it is, and you recognize that in prayer, God wants to, to, to make it so that you have strength in the midst of your infirmity. God purposes our weakness so that we might display the strength of his helping hand. Paul prayed for deliverance, but he recognized that deliverance wasn't the primary objective. Glorifying God was. Being in his will was. Paul found pleasure in his own weaknesses because it necessarily demanded the power of Christ rest upon him. Praise God for that testimony. Continue on. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us. Here's the deal, guys. This is it. This is, this, is, this is important. When we pray, we don't always have God's heart. Did you know that? Sometimes when you pray, you don't pray with God's heart. You pray with your heart. Okay? Now, but sometimes we have God's heart. Yeah, sometimes we have God's heart. But we don't have his mind. We don't have his mind. We have his heart. We desire the will of God. We want what God wants. But we don't know what God wants because we don't have his mind. Okay, but sometimes we have his mind. We have, sometimes we have his mind, but we don't have the words to say what we know is right. Sometimes when we sit down to pray, we're at a loss of words. When we call upon God for help, we're at a loss. We don't know how to pray. You know why? Because we're weak and we need help. We often struggle to know what to pray about. We're short-sighted. We're oblivious. We're oblivious of our need. We're selfish in our prayer life. So God gives us the Holy Spirit to make intercession for us. Now, what is an intercession? Am I losing you guys? 
I've got to get to the close. We can't get there unless you're with me. Okay? I don't want to get to the end and not take you with me. What is an intercession? Intercessions are appeals, interventions on our behalf. The Bible says that we can make intercessory prayer for one another. So what's that look like? Well, I can pray for Luke. He can come to me, and I can intercede on his behalf. And guess what? When I pray, I might pray things that he might not pray. In other words, I can think about his situation objectively, where his prayers for his situation, we'll just pretend for a moment, Luke, since I'm using you. They might be a little selfish, or maybe he doesn't know how to pray, or maybe he doesn't have all of the information. And so guess what? As his brother in Christ, I can be there for him, and I count it a joy to intercede on his behalf. And the Bible tells me I can do that in 1 Timothy 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, and James 5, 16. And when we talk with our brothers and sisters Christ, in Christ, they can intercede on our behalf. And in fact, that is effectual and fervent and powerful prayer. Yeah? So intercession is when something comes between us to bridge the gap. Where it might be difficult for us in prayer, the Holy Spirit comes and intercedes. And we need that. So key point. We need the Spirit to help us because we don't always have the appropriate words to say. You're selfish, you're oblivious, you're clueless, and you pray selfish prayers, and the Holy Spirit, he, takes, he hears that prayer, he recognizes where it, it airs, and he makes it fit for the Master to hear. Thank God for that. Because if God the Father heard the prayers that I pray sometimes without the Holy Spirit filtering out the wickedness, and the selfishness, I mean, I think I would have already been struck by lightning at this point. I think I would already be dead. At least I deserve that. The Holy Spirit intercedes for me. And it makes the prayers that are weak and, and unsure and, and, and lack faith, it makes them appropriate for the Father's ears. Now it says in 26b that the Spirit itself maketh intercessions for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Did you catch that part? Groanings that cannot be uttered. And a lot of times people take that. And what they say is, is you'll hear them say that that's an example of the fact that the, the, the church should pray in tongues. Now, I, I'm not that proud. There's a lot of things in Scripture that I don't, understand, I don't understand, but I try to be plain with the words. When I read the words, I try to think about them simply. And I'm pretty sure that this says that there are groanings that cannot be uttered. <laughs> so, so they're groanings th these are groanings that are internalized and they're not verbalized they're not sounds they're not verbal language so this has nothing to do with tongues friends just, just know that it has nothing to do with that it has groanings inside of us that cannot be uttered because we can't find the words within ourselves to say the right things so the Holy Spirit intervenes and these groanings these groanings refer to deep Groanings within ourselves that arise when we are deeply burdened over something, when, when we're, in, we're in the midst of trial, when we're in the midst of suffering, when there's things that we don't understand, and we cannot find expression in language. Just like Hannah. Yeah? Just like Hannah. She, she, knew, she, she knew what she needed to pray. She vowed the vow. You can read the prayer. It's really interesting. The prayer is recorded for us. The vows that she prays before God are, are there. You know what? I think about that and I read that and I think, I wonder if that's, how, that's the, how the Holy Spirit interpreted the prayers of Hannah. Because she didn't verbalize them in the moment. She didn't say them. God gives us the record of what she really prayed in her heart. And those, when those groanings became before God, what they really sounded like. And guess what? God answered that prayer. <coughs> Now listen, let, let's finish out here. Okay, you ready? Yeah? Yes. Listen, it says 27. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth. Now, hold on. He that searcheth the hearts. Who is that? Do we know who that is? God who? In the triune God. This is God the Father. How do we know that? Well, there's like a million verses that says, that describe for us, the idea that, 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 that the Lord, God the Father, he is the one that searches hearts. Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, every, uh, even to, uh, to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Now, you can study the whole Old Testament. Whenever you see uh, the, 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 the references to God the Father, we can re recognize 
that he is the one who searches our hearts. Okay, so we've got God the Father here in this verse. It says, And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth, knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit. You see the dynamic relationship here in the triune God? Don't let anyone ever tell you that the Trinity is not a thing. Look here. The, the Holy Spirit has his own unique mind. Isn't that what that says? Because God the Father, the one that searcheth and trieth the, re- the reins of our heart, knows the mind of the Spirit. Which has a unique mind. It is a unique personage. Man, the Bible is awesome and it's clear. Um, so the Father is the one that searches the hearts and it knows the mind of the Spirit, which establishes us uh, for us. Uh, okay, so listen, check this out. Look, look, look carefully at it. And he that searches the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, comma, because he, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit intercedes for us in a way that alarms, uh, uh, aligns our hearts and minds with the will of God. Right? The Spirit doesn't have its own will here, does it? Right? It doesn't have its own will. It functions in light of the will of God the Father. And what its job is, is to take and intercede on our behalf and make our prayers align themselves with the will of God. So check this out. Prayer is not a flippant activity. It's not some sort of spiritual, religious thing that we do. It's not some way of unlocking benefit. Prayer is the work of aligning our will with God the Father. That is it. And where our prayers are deficient, thank God for the Holy Spirit. Because key point, number three, the Spirit turns our general prayers of groaning into decisive requests that match the will of the Father. Now I want to note one more thing, and then I'll clean all this up. Okay, so, note. Note the fact that in verse 26, the command is that he helps our our prayer life. In other words, there has to first be a prayer life. There has to first be a prayer life for us, for him to help our prayer life. Okay, so listen, listen. Some of us don't have a prayer life. So this isn't working for you. And, you know, a lot of us convince ourselves, even from this passage, we don't read it right, and we think that our life, our daily life, oh, I want to pray about that. I want to pray about that. Well, I should pray about that. Hey, brother, I'll pray for you. Sister, I'll pray for you. And you just keep moving through life. And what we think is, is that prayer is like Google, like a Google Doc. And things are constantly uploading in prayer. Oh, God's hearing that. God's hearing that. I, Uriah made reference to this the other day. We ne- neglect the work of prayer because we just believe that God's always hearing us and making intercession. Okay? Now, now I don't want to say that your little, your little prayer is wrong. Okay? I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is we have to be deliberate about praying. We have to make time for it. We have to prioritize it because God prioritizes it. And so what this means is that when we prioritize prayer, then the Holy Spirit will take those prayers and do something with them. God's heart is that the Christian, particularly in light of their weakness, particularly in light of their suffering, particularly in light of their sinful tendencies, would seek the heart of God in prayer. Why? Because healing is there. Healing is there. But... More importantly, God's strength and his will are there. That's more important. That's the more needful thing is his will. Not our healing, not our deliverance, not our escape. The more important thing is that God wants to strengthen us and align us with his will. That's pretty amazing. And I want to say this. If you are not familiar with what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. You don't know what I'm talking about. All of this, maybe you're like the guy at the coffee shop where you haven't believed on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And so you don't know, like any of this stuff that I'm talking about, this idea of having access with God in heaven is a foreign thought to you. Listen to me, do not leave today until you find forgiveness in Jesus Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection. Don't leave until you come talk to me. Don't leave until you talk to your friend that invited you here. Because some of, some of us in this room have a form of godliness. We believe in God, 
But we've never put our faith in Jesus Christ, and we need to fix that. That's crucial. We need to do that today. Others of us need to repent because we're not good at praying. We need to repent because we're not good at praying. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Even though I went over and I went a little long, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would not allow people to just leave this place knowing that they have something to deal with, that they have something they need to work through, something they need to repent of. Lord, there's people today who just don't know you, who just don't know you as their Savior. They have, a, they have an idea of who you are. They know the stories of Jesus Christ, but they've never come to a place where they gave their life in return for the life that was extended to them in Jesus Christ. They've never made that exchange. And so, God, I pray that today uh, you would call them to that and you would bring them to a place of repentance where they can lean into you for the very first time. God, make Kaya about prayer. Take those two simple verses and make them a lifestyle for us. We need you, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.